Before we go to the Lord in prayer, uh, Pastor Chris just reminded me to say a very quick word about the Christmas Eve offering. Remember, that's uh, a birthday gift for Jesus. And we'll be reminded of that by the song. And during our Christmas Eve service, we ask you to have something wrapped up with and give it to a child. And during the service, the children will come up and give their gifts, as it were, to Jesus under the Christmas tree. And we make that traditionally a part of our Christmas Eve service. And um, this year, the proceeds will go to Esther Clement, a missionary to Africa. And we hope to um, speed her ministry along there in Africa. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to understand this passage and understand that you are the great gift giver. Your two greatest gifts are discussed in this passage. And even though we see all around us the beauty of your nature, the wonderful things you've given us, the nation that we have, people that you put into our lives, gifts under the Christmas tree, all of those are shadows. All of those are streams from a source. The ultimate gift, the ultimate gift of love that you've shown us is the gift of your Son, and then, for believers, the gift of your Spirit. It's these two gifts that assure our salvation, but more than that, Give us access to all things, for we're now your heirs, if we're in Christ. This passage helps us understand how generous those gifts are, and I pray that you would illumine our hearts to see that, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, children, since we're not dismissed to Sunday school class, I have a little story for you. Earlier in the Christmas season, I sat down with my wife, and I did what all daddies asked their, I asked my wife, what all your daddies asked their mommies as well. They said, honey, just as I did, what would you like for Christmas? Right? What would you like for Christmas? And she went on to list four or five things that honestly I would not have come up with myself. Okay? So children, then this week I went to chat GPT which is an artificial intelligence. And I typed into the computer, my wife is a Christian mother of five. What should I buy her for Christmas? Children, I do not lie to you. I do not exaggerate in one little bit. Chat GPT listed the exact four things my wife said in order. And I thought, is Danielle on the other end writing? <laughs> so I can assure you, children, that she has something from that list. Because that's what she wants. Because ChatGPT said so, right? Well, this is the season when we start thinking about gifts for people. Some of us are gift givers. Some of us think long and hard about what would be a wonderful gift for somebody. We think we want to have the perfect gift for them. And it's the joy of Christmas to hand them a gift that we know they really want, and they unwrap it, and we see their reaction. It's, it's such a blessing to us. It is more blessed to give than to receive, isn't it? And we're on the lookout for a great gift for people. I want us to talk today about God's two greatest gifts. 
And I want you to know that God is a very thoughtful gift giver. God doesn't give his greatest gifts on a whim. And in fact, that is exactly what we studied last week. We had in our context, we read it last week, here in Galatians 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Let's remember that Paul is writing this passage to Galatian Christians. These are people living in the first century Rome, living up in what is now Asia Minor, and they are tempted, they are being tempted to add to their salvation by grace alone, they're being tempted to add the works of the law. And you can look back there in Galatians 2.16 to see that. They're tempted to add works and say you have to do things in addition to believing the gospel. The reason they're tempted to do that is that's what their older family members think. And they want to stay in the good graces of their relatives or to people who could make their life a little easier. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't give in on what you were taught. And Paul is going to teach us what exactly the law is and where it has a place in our life and what salvation is. He's going to go through that, but God is telling us through Paul that he brought his greatest gifts into the world at exactly the right time. We read right here in Galatians 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God had set a time when the law would expire. God gave the law to Israel. God gave the law through Moses. God gave the Ten Commandments. God gave all the laws surrounding that. But he also set a time for the law to expire and for a better covenant to come into its place. And we learned last week that there are three different ways of looking at that word fullness of time. Do you remember how we learned that God prepared the world? God brought in, God spread the Greek language all over the world. God had Roman rule and Roman roads. God created a world that was perfectly conducive for a message with theological precision to spread the world over in a very quick fashion. God prepared the world that way. The fullness of time in that sense had come. God took some preparation for the Jewish people. He had given them a law, and they had failed in that law. And because of their failures, they were dispersed all over the known world. And thus, there was a, a, a network of synagogues where this new covenant, this new message of the Son coming could spread the world over. God prepared the world that way. God prepared the world with the religion of the Jewish people and with their laws, and, and, and God prepared the fullness of, of time is in the usefulness or the uselessness, depending on how you look at it, of the law. God wanted people to realize that they could never live up to the law's demands. They could never sacrifice enough animals. They could never be good enough. They could never love fervently enough. And God wanted humanity, as it were, to come to the end of themselves. God had prepared all the external factors for the world. God had prepared all the internal factors for the world. And when the time was exactly right, when the law had reached its usefulness, God set a time for it to expire 
And when that time came, he sent forth his son to be born under the law to do two things. Now, once all was prepared, God sent his two greatest gifts into the world. We see that in our passage. Once all was prepared, God sent his son, and God sent the spirit of his son. God sent his spirit. Before diving into, and those will be our two points today, God sent his son and God sent the spirit. Before we dive into those two points today, let's get a little structure that you can find in your passage. I want you to look in your passages so you can sort of see this structure for yourselves. The first thing I want you to see is that God uses the same word for both of his gifts. Look at verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, on my Bible, I have to flip the page, but if you go down, you see that it says in verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son. Now, I wish the ESV would have translated it the exact same way, sent forth, or the first one sent, because these are the exact same words. Ex apostello. Okay? God sent forth. And so you might want to circle both of those words and connect them, because they're the exact Greek word. And God wants us to understand them that way. Two sendings. Now, both of these sendings have a purpose. God sent forth his son, look at this, in verse 4, sent forth his son, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And what we see here is this pattern. God sent forth his son in order to redeem. That's God's action. God sent forth his son that we might receive. That's our reaction. God sent forth his spirit God sent a crying spirit. That's his action. And God sent forth his crying spirit so we would realize something. And that's our reaction. Can you see what we're doing here? God sends something, and that's his action. And the purpose of that is for us to react in a certain way. And that's our reaction. And that's the pattern that Paul is following here. God sent his son to redeem so that we would receive. God sent forth his spirit to cry, so that we would realize. God's two greatest gifts are supposed to influence us in some way. Make sense, everybody? With that structure in mind, with that structure in mind, let's go to our first point. God sent his son. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. God sent his son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Let's talk about God's son, God's eternal son. What does it mean that the son was God's son? Does it mean that at some point in time God created him? Does it mean that at some point in time uh, God took on a different form being the form of the son? No, none of those are true. The son has been the son eternally. And he is eternally the son with god we can read about this in psalm chapter 2 verse 12 kiss the son in hebrews 1 8 the writer there says but of the son he says your throne O god is forever and ever of the son he says your throne O god he's calling the son god 
In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we're told that a virgin shall conceive and he shall be called God with us. Or he shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Unto us a son is born. Sorry, I got my verses confused there. Unto us a son is born. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he shall be called the everlasting God. The Son is God. Holy God has always been the Son in that sense. Furthermore, in John 5.18, we're told that as Jesus was walking around on the earth, he was calling God his Father. And that angered the Jews. Because they said, when you call yourself Son, and when you call God Father, here's what they said, you're blaspheming because you are making yourself equal with God. You see, son isn't, in this sense, isn't so much a relationship, but a title. And as son, this person is eternally God, equal with God, and the Jews understood that. And when Jesus called himself the Son of God, they got mad because he was claiming to be deity. Now this son would be born of a woman, we're told. Born of a woman. That promise goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember what happened there in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve, they weren't named Adam and Eve yet. They were the man and the woman, and they were in the garden. The man and the woman in the garden. And they were told you can eat everything. Fill yourselves full with all the blessings of the fruit in the garden and 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 Adam and Eve were 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 only supposed were not were only supposed to not eat from one tree but they did and when God confronted them in that sin and they were they were so sh- ashamed of what they had done God said to the man what have you done and you know what the man did everybody he pointed to the woman okay and the woman pointed to the serpent. And so God said to the serpent, there's coming a person from this woman, a person born of woman, who's going to crush your head. You'll get a strike at his heel, but this son, this person, is going to crush your head. And so when Paul says here, born of a woman, He's making clear reference to Genesis 3.15 that there was a person coming who would be born of the daughters of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. Furthermore, in Isaiah 11, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 7.14, this was the one, uh, for uh, a virgin shall conceive. That was the verse I'd gotten confused earlier. And, And Paul, again, is evoking Bible promises from really all over Scripture. And that this person is born under the law? Well, what he's telling us is that this person is going to be born a Jew. He's going to be born among the covenant people. In fact, we're told that he's going to be of the seed of David. He's going to be of the kingly line. In Micah 5.2, we're even told that he'll be born in Bethlehem. And in Isaiah 11.1, we're told that he'll come from the stump of Jesse. This person... Eternally God, born of a woman, is going to be born into the Jewish nation in Bethlehem with royal blood flowing through his veins. 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born unto the law. But this person was sent with a purpose. This person was sent to redeem. And we're told right here that he is sent to redeem because sinners have a legal problem. He says that he was sent to redeem us from the law. From the law. Well, what does it mean to redeem us from the law? Does that mean he was just sent so that we wouldn't have to follow the Ten Commandments anymore? No, no, no. This word, sent to redeem, this word redeem, means, means something like this. Okay, imagine this. Imagine one of you gets very upset over Christmas. And so you go on a criminal rampage. I had a dream the other night that Aaron and Benjamin Conklin had entered into a life of organized crime. And they tried to recruit me into their criminal schemes. And it was at that stage I woke up. I know not whether I followed them into this life of crime. One may never know. But let's imagine Aaron, expecting child of Sheba, throws a brick through a bank window, runs in there, grabs money, and she's caught. I go down and I talk to the judge on her behalf. And the judge says, well, listen, she stole, she broke this window, she stole $5,000, and now she faces criminal punishment. And I say, okay. I, this word redeem, this word redeem, means that I make the bank whole first. I, out of my own funds, replace the window that she broke. I, out of my own funds, replace the money that she took plus interest. In fact, if I were to go by the law, I would replace three times what she took for restitution. So if she got five, I would give them 15. And as to her punishment, well, I would take that upon myself. I make everybody right. I bear her punishment. But we're still not done yet with the idea of redemption. Because if this were an ancient Greek idea, or an ancient Roman idea, rather, Aaron would no longer be a servant of the state, but would be a servant of mine. Because I bought her back. I compensated for her wrongs. I bore her punishment upon myself. That's what it means to redeem. And it says that Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law. We had violated God's law. We deserved death. And God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to compensate the person who was wronged in our transgressions. So here's the question. Who was wrong? Who was chiefly wrong? Well, God was. And so when Christ Jesus put himself on the cross, he, with his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, paid God what was owed. He paid the damages that we had caused. He gave 
his life over as a sacrifice for us to redeem us. And when he redeems us, we're tempted to stop right there and say, now we enter Christ's service, which is true, isn't it? But Christ doesn't want us to think that way. Christ does not want us to think in terms of a master-lord relationship or as a servant-master relationship. We're not slaves. He says, I bought you, I redeemed you, I paid for all your wrongs, I took care of all the damages to redeem you not unto slavery, but unto what? Unto adoption as sons. God doesn't buy us into further slavery. He buys us into the family. He purchases us into his kingdom. And we become sons. Now this idea, this this redemption, this transfer of service, God doesn't want us to think in those terms. Jesus was sent to adopt us. You see, we have a, a relational problem too. We're born outside the family of God, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We're walking according to the prince of the power of the air. We're walking in darkness. But when Christ came to buy us back, to take care of the damages, he didn't redeem us into slavery, he redeems us into his family, and now we have all the rights and privileges of a family member. We're adopted into God's family. And Christ came for us to realize that he has paid for everything, and now we're brought into his family as an heir. Now some of you might be saying, especially some of you ladies, I don't want to be adopted as a son. I like being a lady. I like being a daughter. (laughs) I hope my daughters like being daughters. I want you. I'm glad you're my daughter. But what does it mean then to be adopted as a son? Well, this is a, a Roman picture. And in the Roman world, only sons could be legally adopted as heirs. And so if Paul had told this first century group, adopted as sons and daughters, the daughters might have said, wait a minute, I don't want to be out of luck. I, don't, I, I want to inherit something. And so he's telling men, women, and children, no matter your station in life, no matter what gender you are or who you are, God will adopt you as a full heir with all the rights and privileges thereunto appertaining. They're yours as sons, legal inheritor of the family name. And everybody gets it. Those who accept Christ by faith. So, let's review very quickly. Jesus came into this world, born of a woman, born under the law. He was a human. He was a Jewish person. He was born in Bethlehem. He provided for all your wrongs. He made amends for everything you've done. He took your punishment. He provided what you can. Not so that you'll have this slavish fear of Christ and God moving forward, but so that you will come into the family of God with absolute confidence that you're his. Now that brings us to the second gift that God sends. The second gift that God sends. God sent 
his spirit. God sends the spirit of his son. In 4.6, it says that the spirit is Jesus' spirit. I will send forth the spirit of my son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit, Jesus says in John 14.26, is always holding up the son. The spirit doesn't magnify himself. The spirit magnifies Christ. And so the spirit, when he comes into our hearts to speak into our hearts, he's always speaking in perfect tandem with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Spirit tells you something, it is as though Christ himself is telling it to you. And thus we all become temples of God because the Spirit of Christ indwells you and begins to speak to you. Now, we're told that the Spirit comes with a message. (coughs) The, The Spirit doesn't just come into your life to reside there passively. Nor does the Spirit come whispering. The Spirit doesn't come speaking softly. The Spirit doesn't come with subtle messages. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit comes crying. It's the Greek word. <coughs> it's the Greek word krodzo. The Spirit comes crying urgently something into your hearts. He wants to communicate something badly to you as he comes into your heart. And the thing he's trying to communicate to you is this, that you are in fact in the family. You are in fact of God. And God is your father and he's saying he teaches us. He comes to convince us of our status in the family of God. He comes crying, Abba, Father. He comes crying into our hearts. Abba, Father. We're told in the book of Romans that the Spirit comes with groanings that are too deep for words. Now, I think everybody's had some of this experience before. I'm going to quiz my kids here so you can see it very carefully. You can see what I'm talking about. We have a a three-year-old in our house, Joel. And Joel has his own vocabulary. Okay? So... So children, if Joel asks for a fefe, what is he asking for? Come on, raise your hands. Just shout it out. A sandwich. A fefe, he's asking for a sandwich. If he asks for yayan, what is he asking for? Yes, yes. A yayan is to sing Jesus loves me. And then this one stumped me the other day. Yayu. Yes, he wants you to sing hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. So, and, and there, there's a few more. There's a few more. Well, kids kind of have their own vocabulary, don't they? And they have to be taught how to speak. One of my great joys as a father of five, and I know some of you dads have done this too, you know that the child is starting to learn its own voice, it's starting to talk, but babble more than talk, you know. And so what do you do? You take, you take the baby's hand and you... You touch mommy with the baby's hand and you say, Mama. And then you touch your yourself and you say, Dad, Dad. And then you touch the baby and Joel says, Joel, Joel. And you just do that over and over and over again, right? And even though the child's mother stays up all hours of the night, and even though the child's mother changes way more diapers than I do, and even though the child's mother waits on the child hand and foot, 
all five of my kids has said whose name first. <laughs> Dada. <laughs> it's a point of pride. <laughs> well, the child has to be taught that, don't they? The child has to be taught that. And in a sense, this is what we're told the Spirit does. He comes into our hearts crying, not subtly, not whispering. He comes into our hearts with a shout, Abba, Father, you are not a slave. You are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. You are not a person who is merely tolerated in God's presence. Angels don't call God their father. Angels in all their power and might. Those are servants. Those are messengers. But you, you're sons. And you've been taught to say, Father. You've been taught by the Spirit to groan inwardly for your God and your King, for you are an heir. And this is God's second greatest gift, the Spirit of His Son. And the Spirit of His Son also teaches you that you're in the family. Now let's draw two conclusions. Let's draw two conclusions. Number one, remember what the spirit, the son's purpose was? The son was born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem. To redeem those who were under the law. And I want you to know the gift of God's redemption can be received immediately, right now, by faith. Turn back with me, Will, to Galatians chapter 3. Go to verse 11. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through what do we see right here? That we receive Christ who redeems us by faith and we receive the promised spirit by faith. I want you to imagine right now with me for just a second that God, well, God is actually, if you have never accepted Christ by faith as your Savior, I want you to think of it this way right now. God is coming to you and he's offering you two presents, two gifts. The gift of his son and the gift of his spirit. And he wants you to make them yours. Now, you can stand there, sit there, and look at the gifts and say, wow, those are intended for me. And you can keep looking at them and walk out the door and go home. You can go on your way with your life and forget that they were ever offered. And there they sit. There they sit. Unclaimed. 
But if you want to make them yours, how do you do that? How do you pick up a gift from God and make it yours? Well, you accept it by faith. You take it by faith. You say, yes, Lord. You sent your son to redeem me from the punishment that my sins deserve. You sent your son to provide the righteousness that I couldn't provide. And I accept that. I believe that. That's the message for me. God, you've sent your spirit into our lives to teach us to cry, Abba, Father, that is mine. I accept that. And that's how you take it. That's how you make it yours. You tell God that you want it. You cry out to him and say, Lord, I want to make that gift mine. We received the gift of God's redemption by faith, and you can have it right now. You can have it right now by faith. And we receive the, God, the gift of God's Spirit also by faith. In Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 47, I won't um, have you turn there, but Peter was preaching to some people. And as he was preaching, the people were sitting there and they said, I believe that. And as they said in their hearts, I believe that, the Spirit of God came rushing upon them. And Peter could see that physically. We don't see that physically now, but he did then to confirm for him something. The point is, they believed, and that's how they took it. That's how they grabbed, that's how they took a hold of God's gifts and brought them to themselves. God has sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem you. So that you can have adoption as sons. God sends forth his spirit, crying aloud in your hearts, teaching you to say, Abba, Father, to convince you that you can be part of God's family. He's putting these two gifts right in front of you now. And he wants you to take them by exercising faith in him and saying, Lord, I want those gifts. I want to make them mine. I might not understand everything the preacher said today, but I understand you're offering me these gifts and I want them for myself. And if that is the cry of your heart, my friends, that is enough. That is faith. That is belief. And that's what God wants to give you this Christmas season. It's his greatest gift. And that's what he wants you to have now. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we rejoice that you sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law. You sent him at exactly the right time that was prepared for him so that you could redeem us who are under the law. Lord, you didn't redeem us unto slavery. You redeemed us unto sonship. May everyone in here cry out to you in faith. For as you say, the just shall live by faith. We believe the promises that you've given and make these two gifts our own. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.